Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Boyce of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Colin Wright, who is an evolutionary biologist and author and editor of Reality's Last Stand, which is a uh, substack that focuses on gender and sex issues. And uh, he's been in this battle trying to stand up for reality, uh, specifically sex-based reality or the reality of male and female as like a human reality uh, for many years now and uh, fighting against the gender ideologues and gender ideology. Most recently, he published a meme or a cartoon about the trolley problem and uh, what is at risk when trans activism gets its way over reality and was promptly or shortly thereafter publishing this meme on Twitter, suspended from Twitter for hateful conduct. He is now back on Twitter. And uh, while he was in the uh, in the stocks, we caught up and had a conversation about his work. And uh, he's been on my channel before. Great guy. So let's get on with the show. Here is Colin Wright. You got the touch. You got the power. There you are. <laughs> there you are, Mr. Speakeasy. You have a floozy around the corner? <laughs> off to, off camera. Yeah. No. Can't see her. I should pour myself a drink for this one. You want I'm in... Go ahead, do it. Why don't you make us a cocktail? Mm -hmm. Take us through the steps. I'll do the cocktail stuff. I'm more of a whiskey neat person. Okay. I'll just go with whatever's in the decanter. Ooh. Do you know what it is? I think it's. And it's been a while since I've. <laughs> Can't put it in there. But I, think <laughs> uh, I think it's Johnny Walker Black. Oh. Ooh. I don't usually put like really nice stuff in there because I want to use the decanter more. So I kind of. Yeah. Decent but not crazy expensive stuff in there. So speaking of decanting, have you recanted your post? <laughs> I knew there was going to be a little <laughs> flourish, herbal flourish. No, I have not recanted my sins. Yeah, no, sorry <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. It's funny because I, I posted the same thing uh, two weeks before that. I mean, it was basically the same joke. But Which I'm one? Just, what would you put uh, up there? I uh, it, mine was uh, it was it was the picture of the trolley problem. And uh, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And did, did I uh, you off completely. <laughs> I didn't even know. <laughs> it's it's an easy joke to make, which is silly <laughs> that they're going uh, they cracking down on you because uh, I was like, okay, so. We could save one possibly trans child and uh, confuse the hell out of 999. Oh, okay. I think I remember seeing that. Maybe it was in the back of my head when I oh, yeah. 
thought of this one. This is how the memes flow, man. We just like bang it around. It's it's a big. Uh, do you ever work in an ad firm? We're all just spitballing. Yeah. It's different enough. Copywriting. Okay. Did you copyright <laughs> it? <laughs> you better. You should make a mug. I, I probably should on these things now. You know, I don't make cartoons very often, but when I do, <laughs> they tend to <laughs> make an impact. It's ridiculous. Huh. Oh wow. It's yeah. crazy though. Yeah. Hate speech. I mean, well, hateful conduct, and oh. then because it was apparently directed or something at vulnerable groups or hmm. based on gender identity. But you know, I was actually really careful to make it when you know the little the person that's pulling the switch. You know, at first I had it say like you know this is a trans activist, but I didn't want to be like, well, the activist is trans. I didn't want to be like a it's a person. So it's actually labeled trans activism, which is this in its only specific strain that like I'm really concerned because I know, and as you know, plenty of trans people who are also against sort of the modern, radical, <laughs> virulent strain. So I was I was actually being quite careful to make it so it was only about criticizing ideas, um, a certain brand of activism. And I mean, in the, the the pathway straight ahead on the cartoon is reasonable accommodations. It's it's suggesting that there's plenty of compassionate people that it would be reasonable, uh, would reasonably accept some some accommodations for them, which would actually help them more. And the, this pathway that they're taking, you know, I could also have put people with gender dysphoria. They could have been tied to the track as well because they're the ones that are like the sacrificial lambs on this stuff too. That they're not getting the help that they actually need for people who legitimately have this condition. So um, it doesn't help them to sort of have their, you know, their therapy tied up with these reality denying ideologies. So it was really trying to, it was trying to be a compassionate cartoon for everyone saying like, it didn't have to be this way. <laughs> you know, we, we could all join hands and just like, you know, sing Kumbaya at some point. And yeah. and it it was in and of itself as I responded later to your ban, uh, that was Twitter's trolley problem. We can allow for open discourse, or we can allow for this yeah. woke ideology. I have a new version that you know. Once I'm back on, I'll probably post it. It's like a, it has, it's, it's a trolley problem. But straight ahead on the track is actual real pedophiles. <laughs> and then it has, you know, the trolley represents Twitter bans. And then on the sidetrack is like me, James Lindsay, Gaze Against Groomers, and Dr. Roller Gator, who are the ones getting banned off Twitter when they could just actually address the real problems in the world. The G word, you brought it out. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's not something I like say on Twitter, really. Like, I'm not the okay groomer person on there. Um, but I, I do, I'm really sympathetic to the gays against groomers, um, cause because I think they have, they're rightfully pissed off. I mean, the, the gay women, they've, they achieved so much social acceptance based on real grievances. And those are sort of being sacrificed by this adoption of these radical ideologies that have nothing to do with homosexuality whatsoever, but they're. You know, this this radical ideology is using all the symbology, the rainbow flags, which they've, you know, they've bastardized that. Uh, the same organizations that were fighting for this stuff, they've just hijacked these, but they're using the same symbols in order to say, like, we're the same thing. You know, this is just 
you know, an extension of this same process when it's, it's just couldn't be more different. You know, there's, there's not an ideology involved with being gay with saying that, Hey, just understand that my love for this person of the same sex is just as strong as yours for the opposite sex. And, you know, maybe we should allow people to love who they love, you know, um, that's that's not an ideology that's just a human experience that people can can relate to and uh be compassionate towards so it might not be an ideology but it is a cultural it's culture specific uh the west is uh the first major civilization in the modern time to uh back away from criminalizing and yeah, yeah. and slandering yeah the, the, the acceptance is the cultural thing but like the the prevalence of it, you know, the the fact that it's there, like, you know, there's, I, I mean, I think people are just innately attracted to who they're attracted to. So you can either accept that as a real phenomenon in nature, or you can, you can not. <laughs> well, I mean, gender, uh, genital preference, that's kind of transphobic, isn't it? I mean, if you... <laughs> so I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up. That's a low blow. You can't bust the balls um, of that cohort without uh, wandering into sure. There's some dark territory. Wordage there for low blow general preferences. Something. Yeah, yeah. there is there. Something there. So you started. You you let you you ventured out onto your own. You left your parents' basement or first floor um, in Sacramento. I was on my own before that, <laughs> living in Pennsylvania as a postdoctoral scholar. Okay, yeah, yeah, but you were still. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in the mama, uh, you're sucking the teat of uh, mama academ. Um, anyway, I'm joking. But you moved out to Nashville and you ventured out on your own professionally, too, and started up Reality's Last Stand. Is that an anime reference or a Wild West reference? What are you referencing there? You know, as far as I know, I came up with that. Um, at least, I mean, if it came, if someone else came up with the name before I at least am not aware of it you know it was I had a tweet um maybe two years ago where I I used it the, that phrase the first time and I think the tweet was something like you know people often ask me why I care so much about biological sex and I don't, I don't remember the tweet verbatim but it was like you know if we, society can be convinced that sex isn't real in mass you know these this low-hanging fruit of what people should be able to verify then we become hostages to chaos because you know that you can basically deny anything if you can deny the reality of the existence of males and females as real biological categories and so that that tweet went really viral and so I, and people really liked the reality's last stand sort of phrase i used and i thought that was sort of a perfect way to conceptualize like why i care so much about this whole sex and gender debate um, so I thought it was a good name for the Substack. You know, in the future, 10 years, I might have to change it because who knows how <laughs> this debate's going to be unfolding. Hmm. Um, I already have plans. <laughs> if I oh, have wow. a so, Contingencies, huh? Yeah. You know, because I do have, I mean, all my eggs in this the Substack basket right now. That's that's all I do is I'm a Substacker. I don't know if that's officially coined uh, well no you're you're an editor though i mean you, you produce content but you also uh host yeah. other people's yeah content. so i guess yeah i mean I, I can i call myself like the founding editor of it so it's it's yeah. more of a i guess like a, just a publication now that talks about this this topic and that was a good move for me to start publishing other people's content because 
publishing two articles a week on there plus like the i do a big weekly recap that sort of synthesizes all like the important news for the previous week and with some analysis and stuff like that and it takes okay. a long time to get those done so yeah um yeah the, the the articles that i publish from other people they're good at bringing in new like free subscribers because they they tend to go viral uh in a big way and then once i do like the weekly recaps and the reading lists those are for subscribers like paying subscribers only so it end up netting a few of those free subscribers during that so it's kind of a good system um it's it's consistently growing so i'm i'm pretty optimistic about where it could go so the weekly recap is that um breakdowns of cultural issues like weekend cringe kind of stuff or do you go through like the latest articles like today or yesterday or early this morning popular science produced an article it came up with an article about avocados and how they show us that human beings are more than male and female there is even a partial partially y chromosome that some women have or something like that yeah, Did you like I saw that? that. It was actually the article because I looked at the link, and the article is actually from 2019. And they just they just decided to like re repost it, and I somehow had not seen that before. So that'll go in the next one. Yeah, okay. the, the recaps. It's really the main. Like, what did I have in this most recent one? It's um, it's like the the main news stories. If you wanna, you know, if you need to read the sort of cliff notes with some some analysis about like to keep current on the whole gender sex and gender debate so uh this one it talks about sort of the boston children's hospital fallout hmm. um, it talks about the aap and sort of how they're sort of walking things back and gaslighting people on what gender affirmation care really is it goes into the that 10 year old transgender model that is um taken to the catwalk and everyone thinks it's bold and, and brave stunning I'll hold the new article and i don't know if you saw the new article in science magazine about uh how astrophysics helped me embrace my non-binary gender identity in all its complexity um so just things yeah. like that like this insane things i start with like sort of the the insane things of you yeah. know how did our society get here then there's a section it's called the sanity section because people would give me they would complain saying that they just were depressed as hell every time they would finish reading my recaps. And so I needed to have some erotic <laughs> cartoons at the some end hope that is in there. So I have like a sanity, sometimes it's hard to find some sanity, but I, I, I make sure to put some in there. Um, and there's sometimes there's either like a whiskey spirit review, or sometimes I've been putting these moments of Zen where it's just like really great monologues of people that are mm -hmm. uh, going hard against sort of gender stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's it's sort of a grab bag of a bunch of interesting. So I, I try to keep it interesting, and um, yeah, I think it's fun. It's fun to write, and I think people enjoy it. So when did you start uh, delving into and surfacing for uh, public consumption the gender woo? Was that at the end of twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen? When it? did I first start talking about this stuff? Yeah, yeah, that was November of twenty eighteen. That was. Okay. Four years. That ago. was when, yeah, Quillette published the uh, New Evolution Deniers piece that I did. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, though, that really wasn't, had nothing to do with gender, really. It was all about, because at that point, I was just like the scientist who was saying people are wrong on the internet about what biological sex is. So it really didn't even go into sports. It didn't go into gender ideology. It had nothing to do about gender affirming care or childhood transition, any of that stuff. And 
that actually that came much later that came after i was saying like where is this ideology coming from that's denying the reality of biological sex and so once i like peeked under the hood for a little bit that's when that's when it got real it wasn't it wasn't it was no longer just people who were just you know they're wrong about biology if i just show them why they're wrong then we'll just all you know it'll be fine um because the pushback i was getting to my scientific critiques were not scientific rebuttals they were you're a sexist bigot homophobe all that stuff it's like this is odd and so it's coming from this other place you know the queer theory ideology type of stuff and so then it's really been sort of a spiral <laughs> for me getting into that stuff yeah and just seeing like it's it affects so much more than just like the biology of sex you know it's touches on so many important aspects of society yeah. as you're well aware yeah, that's why I keep on uh, finding more fresh content uh, in this. Uh, and the Popular Science tweeted that avocado article out. And then the next tweet under it was like, if you are transphobe, please block us. Thank you. Right. So it's like in debate, trans women are women. End of debate. End of debate, which is I guess that's kind of popular. But is that science? <laughs> You know, it's it's the same argument over and over again about if we can show examples in nature where sex is fluid and you can change sex, even if it's a freaking avocado, then that somehow gives us like this important insight into the nature of sex in humans. And it's just a com complete non sequitur. It's just, yeah, we could acknowledge that avocados and asparagus and clownfish have different systems than we do and snails they can be true hermaphrodites this the, the, they do that little it's kind of like the bait and switch they're like look at all this diversity in nature and then they sort of then they just start talking about humans mm -hmm. without skipping a beat and then the implication is that like these things can tell us about ourselves um you know they, they might get at some fundamental aspects of what sex is i mean i think these the examples they show they don't undermine the two sexes they just show various ways that sex can manifest in different species um so it doesn't do what they're planning on doing or what they're trying to do it just uh you know they they have to do a little little twist at the end there and hope people don't notice well and uh the dsd differences of sexual development or intersex which i'm putting out there because that's what people uh, could probably recognize they're used as a token they're just trampled over oh you're no, you're not you're not a real woman you you have an extra chromosome. You're not a real man, right? So it completely dehumanizes the identity of those people who are very marginalized. They have a medical condition that can be pretty drastic. It could be pretty mild too. Um, yeah, and important to say that you know intersex people. That this is not an identity. This is just literally a condition that you have. That I mean, most people, you know, it's something they have to deal with and live with. Um, and the idea that you can just point to intersex people as a way to say that sex is a spectrum, as a way to then leapfrog into the idea that sex is arbitrary, to then leapfrog into the idea that we should just let anyone identify into whatever category that they want to, because if it's just sort of a social construct, if we don't know where that line is, then no line is justified. And, you know, and then they're using intersex people in order to justify people who aren't intersex, who are just a trans woman who's just a normal biological male, mm -hmm. um, using them 
to say that they can identify as the complete opposite. You know, it's but trans people aren't intersex unless they actually happen to be. But mm. um, yeah, I mean, it's just again once you're once you're used to hearing these arguments, it's it's they know that these aren't even like convincing arguments. They're just it's just like this gish gallop of crazy things they can just sort of throw into the into the space into the intellectual space to make it so people like me have to just keep popping balloons and keep you know so many plates spinning at the same time that we can't get anything done hmm. but are so i brought up your first foray and you said that that wasn't the first time that you actually got into the gender side of it but once you did get into the gender side of it it's been a few years are they coming up with anything new or are they just recycling the same kind of pattern over and over and over again is there anything novel? Is there anything interesting in it after you get past the absurdity? No. <laughs> I haven't seen anything new. I mean, I've seen their the sort of language change actually a little over time. Okay. And how they're presenting things and how they also they're starting to include um there's an acronym. I can't remember, but it's like trans and it's T gn or something like trans and gender non-conforming like they've they've just sort of added gender non-conforming to the trans population and and this is something that we've been saying so long that you know they're just transing gender non-conforming people and now they've just like explicitly put it in there now it's like trans and gender non-conforming people and you go to these websites where they're like telling about who's eligible for surgeries and they're like trans non-binary and gender non-conforming people it's like when did that get added like that's sort of a new thing in the last i feel yeah. like the last year um that we're seeing more where they're just sort of coming out right and saying what we've all been saying which they've been insisting that they're not saying so that's I, been interesting i have seen uh, a couple of years ago i think at least uh evidence that nb surgery is a thing or like a, like androgynous uh transformation to, to make a woman less womanly or man less manly and, and kind of get this aesthetic, which really does um, get to the aesthetic, which I can appreciate. I can appreciate the andro the androgynous, you know, this, when I was in college, there was those androgynous girls, the, the kind of boyish, you know, kind of tomboyish, those always kind of like attractive kind of women, but you knew that that was kind of a period of time that the, the woman stuff would kick in. Um, and wanting to preserve that immortal youth is kind of the, the heart of androgyny because everybody, uh, an 11-year-old is perfectly androgynous. And that aesthetic itself is, I can, I can see the allure of that and wanting to be that. Um, it's one thing to do that. Uh, which is a whole other ethical question to modify your body for an aesthetic purpose, but it's just a part of our culture. It's another thing to then enforce everybody accepting your identity or denying the reality underpinning the identity. Yeah, no, I mean, I, to I totally agree. We've seen, I think the non-binary thing really gives up like the whole ideology that's underpinning everything. Cause one thing to have, you know, the Buck Angels and the Blair Whites of the world who are just, they have dysphoria. They're trying to present as the opposite sex. And it's a whole other thing to be non-binary and not identify with any sex whatsoever. Like, that's not something that humans are. And then when you actually get into the weeds about what they mean when they say they're non-binary, they say, well, they reject the gender binary. They don't fall into that. Well, like, well, what is that binary? Because they're not claiming that they're intersex. 
they're claiming that they're non-binary and they're not claiming so that's not the sex binary that they're rejecting they're rejecting the gender binary which is like these social socially ex expected roles and expectations of society so masculinity and femininity broadly speaking and this is this is what even like websites like Planned Parenthood, this is how they define the gender binary. Hmm. This is how like the American Psychiatric Association defines it too. When they talk about non-binary people and the gender binary, this is just, it's a pure ideological construct. And it's, it's just out in the open that we're medicalizing just literally gender non-conforming kids. I mean, there's, I was looking at some, I'll pull it up. It's a piece I'm writing now, too, um, where I kind of go through a lot of the way that, like, these major organizations are defining what being transgender is now and how it's really just, really just changed. Um, let's see here, like, the, uh, like, here's how the American Psychological Association defines being transgender. They say... Transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or very important or behavior does not conform to that uh, to that typically associated with the sex which they were assigned at birth and that's just that's just gender nonconformity that's just like i'm not a masculine man or a feminine girl i mean it's it's and is that some somehow something that needs to be treated i mean that's the implication right you need to treat yeah. that yeah yeah i mean i've mentioned before how this this wouldn't be really an issue if it was just like a a subculture among some youth and they're just playing with like new words to describe themselves and you know they grow out of it when they're older it's like goths and the emos and the scene kids or whatever you know there was some like degree of body modification going on there with piercings and gauging your ears and that stuff um but you know there was never like a medicalized component but this new sort of wave of of the, the whole trans kids thing the non-binary movement is you know it's it really shows that, you know, again, it, it wouldn't be an issue if it didn't have this big medical component that was, yeah. that swings into motion the moment someone says they reject the gender binary. You know, that's just, you know, kids are normal to reject regressive stereotypes. I mean, to a large degree, I'm, I'm not coming across as like Randy Macho Man Savage here to you. At least, I don't well, think I've I... seen your Instagram though, so you say <laughs> that, but I mean, and then I've seen your girlfriend too, so you know, because they're kind of barbie ken a little bit going on there <laughs> i mean respect. i would spend i would be very happy to spend a good portion of my day just like bottle feeding kittens all day like that's yeah. that's something that i would love to do that's not a, that's not a stereotypically masculine thing to do so yeah um yeah, well, I, I was a preschool teacher. It's not that's like a ninety a ninety nine percentile. Uh, there's not a lot of men in that industry. It was pretty uh, educational to be in, enmeshed in in the matriarchy uh, as long as I have. Uh, I learned a lot, and and with the kids too, I learned a lot about gender. I learned a lot about sex, and I, I saw I saw that all those stereotypes, what we call stereotypes, are emergent most of the time. And yeah, there's some feminine boys and. Uh, masculine girls and they are you can kind of tell like oh this person might grow up to be gay you know you might grow up to be gay but they're not gay now you know they're just who they are but i i was just always uh, amazed when i thought about the uh, feminist critique of gender as these impositions on 
children that they're molded, but I would see a one-year-old or a two-year-old girl and boy completely plug into the world differently. Uh, girls tend to be much more social, much more verbal, and boys be, <laughs> tend to be much more rowdy, rough and tumble, but they both need both. You know, they both need to experience both. Yeah, this is where I actually get into trouble with a, a certain strain of radical feminists, too, because... You get in trouble with radical feminists? I mean, some of them. Because there is, there is a strain of those those people. <laughs> who, Wonderful uh, women. A lot of I actually like most of them. Yeah, me too. Um, and even ones I disagree with, I also like as well. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there is a really... Like, a, unhealthy amount of social construction that they also have too with with sex differences in behavior and things like that like they there is a lot of people who are pushing back against the trans stuff um against gender ideology who will say that you know i can't i should i shouldn't be talking about any sex differences between males and females in their behavior because they still think it's all socially constructed and i'm just like well you you were like the gateway drug that led to where we are now with people who are like denying sex completely because it used to just be like the blank slaters and now it's well they're still sort of that but like the blank slaters gave rise to these like blank morphology uh, people who yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. it's not just a slate it's like you can you, reality is completely projected like they're all about the projection and i think that that has to do with the will i think there's a theological component or a psychological uh, philosophical component that centers like i am the master of reality i get to decide what my body does and uh, that does come straight from the assumption that it's all socially constructed and i've heard uh, uh fourth wave now um Brianna, she, she, Denise, she has uh, several uh, names, but she wrote about that too. And she got in trouble with the same cohort of her fellow radical feminists because, uh, and she said that they assume that gender stops here, like, like biology stops here. And there's all this other stuff that goes on in the head. And that's mm -hmm. what I, I'm interested in on the next level. Have you investigated like behavioral patterns and uh, discovered uh, or uh, articulated like the patterns that we call masculine and feminine and, and their relationship with Evo Bio or Evo Psych? You know, I'm I'm getting into some of that now for a piece I'm writing and it's it's actually really interesting. I've been talking to uh, Marco Del Guidis or Del Guidice. I don't know how to say his last name. He's Italian. Um, and he's probably the world expert. He'd actually be a really good guest for you to have on mm -hmm. human sex differences in, in behavior, um, personality and behavior specifically. And he's done really great work on sort of the universal sex differences and, um, you know, measuring people's differences both on a trait-by-trait -trait basis. And then he's really known for using this sort of multivariate um, approach where, because you get a lot of people that would say, you know, like, oh, you know, men are only 10% more aggressive than women and men are 5% more on this and 3% more on this. And they say like, well, this is, these aren't really big differences. And his main thing is like, well, no, well, it, these small differences, they're all correlated with being males. And so if you actually like sum up these differences in a multivariate way, you can actually make an extremely predictive, predictive uh, model where if you have someone fill out like a, you know, an extensive, you know, survey about their personality traits, you can predict, you know, in the high 90 percentages what the sex of that person is more than if you were to measure anyone's individual trait you know it's, it's sort of like a good analogy to use would be like the faces of males and females where if you say you know are there how different are male and female faces well people can really identify 
a male and a female face and the high 90% is just at a glance. But if you really want to break it down, like, well, what's the, what's the difference between a man's face and a woman's face? Well, it's, you know, the nose is 10% this way, the yeah. eyes are 10% that way, the jaws 5% more this way, but all those add up into like these sort of emergent differences where at a glance we can just be like, bingo, that's, yeah. this is a male and a female face with, with high probability. So he's got interesting work, but then there's this whole other research that is dealing with um, sort of these gender stereotypes. Cause not all these sex differences really register in our brains as being like the same as these collections of things that we consider to be like gendered behavior. So there's this research on like gender diagnosticity and, you know, it incorporates some aspect of like the, uh, the, the, the things and people aspect of what people like. Um, there's a lot of it, you know, a lot of some of the most robust differences are like parental reports of their child's gender nonconforming behavior when they're kids self-reports of their gender nonconformity, um, types of toys they like to play with. And it's actually really interesting because most of the sex differences and personality traits we see are more variable in, in males. There's like this greater male variability hypothesis that tends to hold up across many different traits. But when you talk about like a very specific, like narrow band of behaviors that we consider to be like gendered stereotypes it's actually girls who exhibit more variation in gender norms than boys do hmm. some of this is like it could be like the social norms that we attribute like we're we're more quick to say that a male is gender non-conforming if they violate one of their one of these typically masculine behaviors that we associate with being boys whereas girls have to violate more before we would say that they're really super gender nonconforming. So there's like a much wider breadth of traits that girls can have. And we'd say that, well, they're gender nonconforming. Boys tend to be more bullied into their, to, into a narrower band of acceptable behaviors. Um, and what's really interesting. So we have like, it's actually part of the article I'm writing is, you know, we expand the definition of what being transgender means to being gender nonconforming. And so this would explain like a huge explosion in the number of, kids who think they're trans especially women and then we should expect there to be more girls who are who are exhibiting this because girls tend to be more gender non-conforming based on this narrow set of sort of gender diagnostic behaviors um so this wouldn't even require i mean i think the social contagion is an aspect of this and stuff but i think you can just look at some some pretty robust research of just you know changing definition and also the variation of behavioral traits and gender gender norms between males and females. And that really explains to me the enormous rise and the sex ratio flip we have uh, in. What is in, it? 4,000% increase of uh, females. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So it's, yeah. it's a piece I'm hoping it'll make a splash, but uh, we'll see. So <laughs> I'm working with Marco because the wording is really difficult with the gender diagnosticity. I just don't want to. Yeah. And it's all in Italian too. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a tough piece to write. That's a, so. Are are you saying that men have uh, there's male variability in certain directions, and then there's female variability in other directions? Because I know just sexuality speaking, women females tend to be more fluid with what they find yeah, attractive, exactly. and males tend to get turned on by very specific things. Yeah, there's that. 
there's sort of a higher variation in like toy preferences um, among among girls. Um, more girls when they're when they're young tend to say that they wish they were a boy. Just their parents report them saying that. Um, than than boys. Very few boys say that they wish they were a girl. Now this could be this could be cultural to some yeah. degree. Depending, I mean, there's the, there's a cultural aspect um, so that you can't really divorce from the whole situation. So it could be that you know males are actually more variable in lots of behaviors. But there's just like we give boys have less leeway before we were going to call them gender nonconforming hmm. um, than than girls. So it's it's a it's a fascinating literature, and I've really just been trying to pin it down to like a few behaviors but they're they're kind of elusive to pin down in like a really rigorous way like what are the exact traits because what's considered masculine or feminine it kind of varies and so you have to really use a few different diagnostic type of hmm. um, analyses to, to to narrow it down mm-hmm. and then the whole social aspect of its kind of cultural aspect is there was another sort of yeah. complex wrench in the whole the whole thing uh, you know, we can we can give uh, social constructionism or constructivism its due and say that there is a large influence that culture has on the shaping and the honing of people's behavior and the channeling them towards different things. And I think it would be understandable um, to be quicker to judge boys um, because we know that boys just get more intense into things. Boys, once they get on a track, they get really intense. And so we try to channel them in ways that are predictable, which is kind of good for society down the road because we can predict how a male behaves. Uh, Predictable males are uh, much easier to get along with on a societal level because men tend to be pretty intense with um, how they end up uh, acting, acting out. Different ways. Yeah, no, for sure. Are you, uh, do you, I, I guess that's not really your wheelhouse to think sociologically speaking, but you're always kind of, you're in that no matter what. You're talking about gender, you're talking about culture. And I'm wondering, uh, are you, do you find yourself having to always doubt or always back away from uh, kind of describing that level of discourse? Or do you find yourself gravitating towards kind of a firmer understanding of gender as a social contract or as a uh, social conduct um i think there's several different useful ways people talk about gender um there are some that i think are crazy like i don't think the whole the the way most people talk about gender identity is just sort of like what they really mean is their it's their own inner awareness of the degree to which they're conforming to that they innately conform to masculine and feminine stereotypes to me, that's just like an awareness of your gender conformity. Like if you put a scale of masculine and feminine and ask me to draw a dot where I think I am, it'd be on the masculine side, but it's not going to be like all the way over. And that's kind of, I think, what people mean when they are talking about gender identity. And the people who draw the dot closer to the middle probably would consider themselves non-binary. You know, in, in the sciences, we would sometimes talk about like gendered behavior, even in like non-human animals. Um, and that usually just means sort of the sex differences in behavior that we observe, like these, we call like just gendered behavior. It's really just average sex differences in behavior. So that's useful. But I do think sort of the rad femme conception of, of gender as a social construct, whereas like the social roles and expectations that we place on individuals based on the sex we perceive them to be, I think that's 
really interesting and useful. And I think there's probably some valid research that can go into there and why we ascribe sort of these values onto people um, to the degree to which they're adhering to these norms. Um, because I think this describes hmm. like a lot of, a lot of transphobia to some degree. Like when, when I say like when a, when a trans woman is experiencing bigotry by somebody, it's usually not because people perceive them as oh, you're, you're a trans person. It's really because society perceives them as like a, a really gender non-conforming male. Like what's more gender non-conforming than a guy putting on a dress and wearing lipstick and all that stuff. Like, that's it's the same thing that makes you know effeminate men you know gay men get discriminated against because they're gender nonconforming in, in in ways that people can recognize and the literature does show that being a feminine man that is like the most highly predictive thing if you're going to get bullied in school like that is just across the board and it's it's not even the same for girls the girls do get bullied if they're if they're uh, masculine but they don't get bullied by guys and and guys don't bully feminine girls guys bully feminine boys and girls also less to less degree bully feminine boys more, but less than guys. Hmm. So it's, I, I think those social constructs that we, we talk about of like these masculine roles and things like that and the violations of them. I think that's really powerful to talk about those types of things. And I just, th those are the conversations we're not having though, hmm. given that gender is now being talked about as yeah. this, like this identity, like a soul type of thing. And, um, based on stereotypes, it's 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 not useful. I don't think that analysis is helpful at all. And in me doing my research on like all the gender diagnosticity, I can't almost. There's almost no paper after 2010 that is legible anymore because the the, the ideology, the lens that this is being viewed in, shifts completely to the the gender woo woo stuff that we're dealing now. Before it was just an acknowledgement of sort of these sex stereotypical behaviors. Now it's all gender identity and stuff, and it's almost completely useless. So all the studies before 2010, or that's that's where the gold is for me to like explain what's going on, because it just drops off a cliff. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Interesting. It's been it's been really, really interesting looking at this the shift that you see in the literature about how you talk about gender. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder if there's you know, there's got to be a way to analyze that and then to kind of pinpoint how that happened. It probably came from the humanities, probably in the women's studies that then turned to gender studies, and then also uh, postmodern analysis kind of came together and and pushed found the weakest point into STEM. To, to get into STEM was probably gender. Um, so yeah. I wonder if that's like the yeah. most, not there's, corrupt, but useless uh, non-scientific aspect of STEM at this point. Yeah. There's, there's also a lot of like gender workbooks you can look through. Like I have oh, got a couple of these here. Yeah, like workouts. It's really like their gender one. workouts, like, you know? Like are there like different like exercises you can do to flex your gender? Good. I don't know if you want to bring this in the gym, <laughs> but this is uh, anti-bias curriculum Tools for empowering young children. Oh, I don't what, have a book marked that on the like page 72? right now. Is that like seventy two? What day was that it's printed? It's old. It's like from the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's super based. Eighty nine. Like you'll read the section on like gender, and they'll talk about how like being a boy or girl is has to do with you know your your sex, and we need to like it's they call it like you know sexist gender identity is saying that it's rooted in you know stereotypes, and they're really good at just like distinguishing between 
you know, you're a boy because you're a male and, you know, but also embracing gender nonconformity type of thing. And then I was looking because this, this same author, uh, what's her name? Um, Louise Derman Sparks. She has an updated version of like from last year. And I was like, I want to see the same book of what, what they're talking about now. It's completely, completely different. It's all the woke gender stuff now. And I was like, what happened to you? Like you, you were so, it made so much sense in this old book. Um, and it's, I just wonder if it's just like, does she really believe it? Or does she realize that like, she can't publish this book anymore unless she like toes this line? Because I just can't imagine making that much sense is in there. I mean, it's shockingly breathtaking. It's it's refreshing as hell to read that stuff. Um, and the new stuff is just, it's terrible. It's just stereotypes. The exact thing that she rejected in this book as being regressive and sexist and all that stuff. It's fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, I, one of my uh, un, unexplored ideas, but uh, the, before transphobia, there was homophobia, and homophobia was a political tool in order... It was one aspect of gay acceptance, and uh, it, it was relied on a little bit, but there was a lot more work with just normalizing that the homosexual isn't some, you know, San Francisco person who's just, like, sleeping around. It's your brother, it's it's your it's your neighbor. These are normal people. There's a normalization of that. Um, there was just something that, that bothered me about uh, homophobia as a, as a bully tactic to get me to, you know, just agree to a list of demands about marriage and reconform my idea of, of what I grew up thinking uh, different terms were. But also on the other side of it, um, while you brought up uh, feminine boys get bullied more, one has to wonder if homophobia is a emergent property of masculine group behavior, what is it there for? Like, we can... We can decrease it, right? We can we can say that it's not healthy for anybody involved. It's not a good thing, but it's still there. And if we can't even ask the question because that label homophobia becomes like it's like it's a bad thing, you know, so we can't even look under the hood. Why is that there? Why do men police other men's uh, masculine and feminine behaviors? Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I would say that like... <laughs> You know, we have we're a sexually dimorphic species. That means that there is male male competition for mates. Fewer males sire more children than than uh, you know. It's there's there's a, there's a reproductive skew in males that's not there for for females um, to to a similar degree. And so I think there's just more competition among males to compete for reproductive access. So you can get there by shaming others around you and bullying others and making yourself you know more dominant in retrospect if you can shame all these others and police the behavior of all the other males around you to sort of build yourself up i think a lot of it can probably be because of that i mean it's um yeah just exiling the the hmm. the feminine men from your your pool you know it's it's a, just a good bullying tactic i guess you know it's it's not good but i think it can be largely explained by this just male male yeah, competition yeah. That, well, you know it's it exists in humans it's not as pervasive as like in gorillas for instance where there's so much more sexual dimorphism and then if you get into lemurs where there's not really any sexual dimorphism apart from the genitals you know there's really no policing going on there they make their pair bonds forever and there's very similar reproductive skew um, 
Oh, could yeah, you, could you highlight the, highlight that point? The are you saying that the more sexual dimorphism, the more competition, typically yeah, speaking, and the less, the less. Male. Yeah, yeah. You you get sexual dimorphism by increased male male competition. Like the okay. species that you see where the males are so much bigger than the females, that's because the males are battling each other, you know, tooth and claw for access to mating with a larger pool of females. And because the more dominant males end up reproducing with more and more of their genes go on to the next generation. Yeah. And those genes are by and large, the more dominant, larger males. I mean, you see this in like elephant seals is a pretty extreme example where, you know, one big dominant elephant seal will be mating with essentially like all the females on the entire beach. That's why you see them just battling it out. And that's, you also see the dimorphism that male elephant seals are just enormously <laughs> like disproportionate to the females. And as the species, I mean, you can look at, you can basically just draw a line through it for um, for primates. You know, gorillas are at one extreme of sexual dimorphism and how territorial they are. And the male gorilla has, you know, their, their group of females that they're all mating with. Um, to a lesser extent, you have chimpanzees. There's still some dimorphism. You know, humans are dimorphic, less so than... Um, than gorillas, and then you get to different species like lemurs and things like that, and you know they're they're almost identical size. I think the males are just a little bit bigger, but not oh, much. Okay. And you can all you can plot like the behavioral differences on that same that same graph of dimorphism. It's highly predictable, not even just in primates, but across mammals generally, and even other species too. So it's it's a really really predictive. Um, uh, trait when you see sexual dimorphism, you can almost always say like, "Oh, there's intrasexual competition that is creating this mm -hmm. reproductive skew." One wonders on an evolutionary time span if uh, time span if uh, the gender nonconformity becomes the rule, if it would shape human beings into be less and less and less dimorphic and more and more androgynous. One just wonders if you could hit the button and see what happens, and how long would it take? Ten thousand, ten billion. Uh, 100, 200,000? Probably a long, yeah. yeah Probably talking times. hundreds of thousands, if not more, <laughs> years. Yeah. I mean, there, there would have to be, like, decided selection pressure on that. And I don't think, I mean, you know, individual tastes might differ, but I don't think, like, masculine guys are going to go out of style anytime soon. Um, hmm. Yeah. Slightly off topic, but because it, it might not be, um, I just wonder about your thoughts on the selection pressures of social media. Maybe you can speak a little bit about your generation or the Tinder generation, if you've had any thought about the selection pressures or the, the sexual marketplace and um, how it's uh, informing uh, human sexuality, if there's a feedback loop, if you've looked into that. Yeah. You know, I haven't looked into it too much. I mean, I've read some some people's articles about it that I find interesting. And, you know, you can talk about, I don't really specifically know how social media like Twitter is affecting selection pressures and things like that. But hmm. I think in terms of like dating apps and stuff, I think that is, you know, as a species, it's probably not doing much because, you know, it's very, I guess, more of a Western thing to have these sort of apps that are involving you selecting mates. But the data from, from like tinder for instance i mean it's it's just what every evolutionary psychologist would would have predicted you know that you have a very narrow set of males who are getting the vast majority of the likes from women uh men tend to be much more uh egalitarian with who they're swiping on you know they 
it's it's much more evenly spread out. So you have basically like 80% of the women who are competing for the top 20% of guys um, with that reproductive skew. Mm-hmm. And so Tinder's not not kind to to most most men out there. And if, when that becomes like the most dominant way that people are meeting people, you know, it's 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 really unfortunate for, for a lot of guys out there who you know who have a lot to give in many ways but who maybe just on a on a just a glance and swipe basis aren't you know ticking the the main boxes immediately so i think the move away from meeting people at friend groups and bars and that type of stuff yeah i mean it's it is definitely creating probably some sort of selection pressure i don't know if it's going to be you know enough to really change the trajectory in any long-term source I mean, we have so much inertia from the hit from history uh that i don't you know you're not going to going to change the entire sort of reproductive makeup of mm-hmm. of humans in a couple of generations so um but it's it's definitely contributing i think to a lot of you know the whole like incel movement too i think that can be described by a lot of this move to online dating type platforms and things like that so it's mm-hmm. it's definitely interesting yeah and uh somebody just uh posted on twitter that their friend was taking them through uh showing them uh lesbian tinder and it was mostly males like it's really interesting it's got to be evolutionary right like once you open the gate of course men are going to try to exploit that yeah i mean there's all kinds of ways people have described that i mean there's there are some species where the male will imitate females in order to get close to them to sneak reproductive access yeah. to them i mean they literally call them sneaky fuckers is, is what strategy. john maynard smith described does them it on. does do do males ever identify as avocado toast to get into uh, the wine mom uh, market i think that well, would be that <laughs> 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 well avocados do do break down the binary as we know so yeah. yeah yeah it's I think you can, I mean, you can take lessons from nature. You know, we see like the whole like sneaky effort thing. And you know that's really common in, in fish and I think in some lizard species. And it's not that we can't learn anything about humans from these types of systems. Um, Cause I think to some degree, like these dynamics do exist in humans, but it's, it's just kind of when you, but those are more behavioral patterns and reproductive strategies among males and females it's not like undermining what males and females are at a fundamental level so hmm. yeah having a really good you know taking a step back and surveying the behavioral the sexual behavior of many species could really be enlightening to then just like look at humans as just another species mm-hmm. um that's not really unique and just using the same metrics of sexual dimorphism and stuff to to make predictions and, mm-hmm. and we're really not different we don't break we don't break the norm like almost at all when you just take a pure anthropological look at humans we're just like a large a large ape mm-hmm. in many ways yeah well it's been embedded in our language forever and it's not necessarily as accurate as uh, like a david david attenborough film or something like that but we call a man a lion or a pig or a rat right we can kind of see that there's different behavior patterns that we haven't we've animalized we we haven't gendered we've we've animalized certain behaviors i think that human beings uh what do you think about that? Uh, the human beings have such a b- wide breadth of variation in our behavior, probably more than 
most any other animal. Is there any other animal that comes close to the uh, the variation of our personalities? We even had to create the concept of an identity or personality to speak to the yeah. variations. That's that's really interesting. I mean, my my PhD was studying animal personalities, <laughs> so oh. both individual and collective personalities of of you know ants, bees, and wasps, and that type of thing. Um, social spiders as well. It's actually really unfortunate. There's not a lot of crosstalk between like the animal, per the non-human animal personality literature, the stuff that I did, and like the human personality stuff. And it's it's mainly because like you can't give animals like surveys and really go underneath the hood and see, <laughs> get their like, engram score. <laughs> yeah. So whenever you try to like score animal personalities, it really has to be just like these unmistakable yeah. things that you can record when you're not knowing anything about the content of their brain like like so energy can, level like, aggression how aggressive are you yeah. like oh you really bit the hell out of that prodder so you're gonna get a five. Oh, you kind of you bit it only half the time we probably you get a you get a two um you know how social are you how the, how well they explore new environments you know there's you know, put a novel object in the room, measure their degree of neophobia, how bolder they are, their propensity to take risks in novel situations. Like, these are the things that you score for, like, animal personalities. Um, I mean, I guess you could probably do them for people to some degree, but it would be really hard to just, like, interpret them in, like, a one-to-one -one way with the same type of things you're doing in certain animals just because there's a whole, like, cultural layer going on to it. and. Yeah. Um, a lot of software. People, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough, but I mean, it would be interesting. I just I don't know how you would do those experiments in in humans in like an ethical way. So I don't I don't know if humans are actually more varied in their behavior. I mean, they might be. Um, yeah, I'm not sure actually, because hmm. you'd be shocked about how I mean, almost any species that you look at for personality differences from spiders to ants to leaf hoppers I mean, it, it exists you find it everywhere and sometimes the personality differences are really strong um you know we don't know the the nuances of their behavior from the perspective of a leaf hopper so it's hard to know uh how they're feeling on the inside <laughs> so well yeah it's hard to say in the case of dogs, we've imprinted personalities through selection. We've uh, increased selection pressure to manifest different personality traits. Intelligence, people people say, and it's hard because I think we do a lot of projection of personality onto our pets, but you can see some pretty ob objective standard deviations between a, a pit bull and a chihuahua and a Doberman and a St. Bernard, right? Yeah, and that's also because we've selected different breeds to go in different directions and so we we kind of see more extremes probably where if you just were to study wolves you wouldn't see as much breadth in their behavioral repertoire as you are if you like just study domesticated dogs which you know they all they all came from came from wolves um just because you know we're able to really select every behavior to its extreme in any direction we want to go with any individual breed hmm. so we've really just sort of like flattened out like <laughs> all the behavior in any direction it could possibly go uh so yeah i would i would say you'd probably see a lot more variation in like domesticated dogs as a whole than you will in just just wolves for instance but that doesn't but all those behaviors at least the 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 roots of them and the you know that they, they exist in wolves they just needed to be 
you know, selected for their, their extremes. Mm-hmm. And concentrated. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So it's fascinating stuff. I missed, I miss, I, I'm really happy to talk about all this evolution stuff. Cause I really don't get to talk about it that much anymore, <laughs> but it's, it's so fascinating. And it's what got me into science in the first place. Yeah. Um, when, when was that? Was when you were 12 and you were reading Dawkins or something? When was your great... It was actually maybe when I was around... No, I'd always been interested in maybe being a biologist, but I really got super serious about it when I was maybe around 20. Um, I had my real estate license because I, I dropped out of community college. Well, I flunked out. I got kicked out of community college because um, I was a business major and I failed all my classes because I didn't care. Hmm. And so I was, I got my real estate license and I was doing real estate. I really wish I had my business card here because it's hilarious. Uh, and I was in my spare time, I was reading a lot of Richard Dawkins stuff. I was, I was really into Carl Sagan's cosmos. Um, and I thought I wanted to be like an astrophysicist maybe cause I was, I kind of wanted to go back to school, but I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go. And it was when I I was reading a lot of Stephen Jay Gould, a lot of his natural history essays, and then read Dawkins. I think when I read his book, The Ancestor's Tale, that really just sealed the deal for me. That's hmm. to me that's his that's his masterpiece. Um it's probably it's not his like biggest contribution to evolutionary thought, but it's his it's the best introduction to evolution that anyone could ever have. It's so good. It's like a backwards pilgrimage to the dawn of evolution. So like he has you start now and then he says you know, let's go back to your 1,000th, you know, great-grandmother, your ancestor, 1,000 generations back. Who were they? Okay, let's go back 10,000 generations, 100,000 generations, a million. Who's your 10 millionth ancestor? And then each chapter talks about, like, what that ancestor did. And it's it's so good. It's, it's a fascinating book. That sealed the deal for me because I was, I was in those conversations about, you know, intelligent design and creationism and stuff, too. Because uh, I sort of have that scientific debunking, I guess, um, strain in what I did. I had a blog and everything that did a lot of that and engaged in those debates. And I, th- I thought I was doing the same type of thing when I started trying to debunk the weird sex spectrum stuff. But that, you know, that was that was a, a landmine. It was because that was inside the home. You know, that was inside academia where people were making those arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For me to say that, you know, that's just as pseudoscientific as what are these people were doing that's what that's what got me in trouble yeah yeah so you were a nude atheist a nude atheist (laughs) (laughs) were you a part of the new atheism yeah for sure big time yeah Yeah. that that got corrupted well it got uh, possessed by uh, progressive politics social justice i always thought that was interesting how uh they decried religiosity and then they opened the gates for that do you ever ponder that and the direction oh, yeah. that atheism went and they've gone so insane it's really bizarre cuz i i was big fans of you know do you know matt dillahunty by any chance He's the atheist community of Austin. He was like the leader of that president for a long time. He's got the atheist experience TV show. He was so influential on me. Um, Just how to apply logic, burden of proof, all that stuff. He's a brilliant guy. He really is. And it has been just so amazing to watch him just like his mind just melt with the whole gender stuff. 
Same thing with like PZ Myers. He used to have a blog called Ferangula, evolutionary uh, developmental biologist. He's, I actually think he might have like a mental issue because he's just like completely like a rabid animal when he talks about this stuff. Like he's, he cannot be even reasoned with. And I watched old lectures of him from back in 2010 and he was so reasonable. And now he's unlistenable. He's just so bitter and angry about everything. And it's Hmm. all the social justice stuff. Matt Dillahunty blocked me on Twitter because I disagreed with him about, I corrected a JK Rowling thing he said, and that was it. And that was, that was, you know, he was like one of my heroes at the time. Hmm. And so it's really been bizarre watching the atheist movement just really been taken over by the whole gender stuff. Hmm. Um, Especially because they're all about, you know, free thought and, debate and rejecting groupthink <laughs> or at least they were and you know i'm just i'm exiled from that that whole yeah. whole community too they're they're some of the most religious people i've i i know now it's really bizarre yeah one one day i was scrolling through reddit and i entered into a comment section i'm like how did i get into a fundamentalist what, what am i reading this is so fundamentalist everybody's just like so hardcore believing and then i looked at the subreddit it was atheism i'm like oh that's weird <laughs> there were some good glory days i mean there was there was a big um like a forum, the Richard Dawkins.net on his website, like after he released the God delusion, his website had a forum and it was like this atheist forum and you could like ask any question. It wasn't just about atheism. There were several different subtopics and I was so active on there and it was this like really amazing, like hub of free thought hmm. um, that ended up getting shut down because he didn't like a lot of the conversations that were happening on there. Cause they would get too risque, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, then it switched over to Reddit because when that shut down, everyone in the atheist community was looking for a forum and Reddit was kind of there. And so they took over Reddit. Um, it be it initially had just a bunch of memes and memes were sort of destroying that Reddit for a while. And then they banned memes and then the conversation got a little better. And then the gender stuff hit and then it just went insane. Like it just turned into a, a cult basically. Um, hmm. That's when I checked out of it. I mean, I, I'm still like on the advisory thing of the Amer- uh, Atheist for Liberty, which is sort of a an anti-woke atheist organization, but they're only anti-woke because they think that the wokeness is a religion in and of itself. And so they're just like, you know, they're just being, I see it as being consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I try to do stuff with them and promote them, but it's it's really not a conversation that I think is front and center in society right now, given the whole woke stuff going on. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, I thought about that. Sam Harris uh, was interviewed last week and there was a story. You probably saw this stir. He made some claims (laughs) about um, Donald Trump that just seemed very irrational. It seemed like this paragon of rationality was being very irrational. So you picked up that too. I I riffed on that. And, and um, my, um, I I know that individuals can be atheist. I think I I know that individuals can be free thinkers and uh, not necessarily need a uh, mythological structure uh, to inform their morality. I understand that on an individual level, but I don't think more than two or three or four or five people, I think the group dynamic is invariably religious in some way. And if you don't, if you're not conscious of the tribal nature of religion and how religion possibly was an adaptation specifically 
too organized groups. If you're not aware of that, then it can creep up in various different ways. It will creep up in a different way. So I think on that level, on a group level, religion kind of is inevitable. And uh, that's probably uh, something you might not disagree or you might disagree with. Um, I don't know how you avoid that. And what happened to atheism or new atheism is kind of just what I'm pointing to when I when I look at that. You know, I think the atheism going mainstream was, you know, in some ways it was good, but then in some ways it was really bad because the original like atheist movement before it really blew up was, it was really just a bunch of skeptics and they were kind of all across the political spectrum, really. They were just, you know, we're skeptical of these claims, we're debunking UFOs, we're doing this. It was skepticism was like the central principle that united them yeah they just they happened to also apply their skepticism to this god question and they concluded that you know they didn't think there was justification to believe in it um and that's that's where i was but then once it went mainstream with like the god delusion and the four horsemen all that stuff it attracted a lot of attention from just your everyday person and most of the people who were attracted to it at the time were people on the left because there was a lot of attacks on like evolution in schools. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, homophobia coming mainly from the, the religious right. Um, And so it really, you know, there was a lot of like Democrats that just jumped onto the atheist bandwagon because they used it as a way to club, you know, conservative Christians down. Hmm. Um, But you could see that where the divide was when people would say like, yeah, Christianity's crazy. Yeah. So is, islam and then they'd be like wait a minute what'd you say like you started criticizing islam and that was the main difference where you couldn't say the same things about islam that you could say about christianity and that's what that's because that's where the identity politics came in there with like the you know the the whole political ideology so it, it became political and less about skepticism it became democrats who happened to also not believe in god rather than centering around skepticism first type of thing Mm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah that's that's its popularity was what ended it really just because it got too mainstream yeah peter bogosian other forces peter bogosian a couple years ago said that he'd rather argue with christians than with the woke because at least christians like you can actually reason with them it's interesting because yeah uh, with the woke there's things that you can't question there's there's things that you can't question. Maybe I don't know how gender became the thing that you can't question. I kind of understand how oppression is something that you can't question. But for whatever reason, there are these things in this community that was nominally skeptic, carved out things that you can't question. Uh, whereas Christ, Christians that were engaged in argument with atheists, I think largely were trying to defend. They were running towards the questioners. They weren't saying you can't question, you can't question, you can't question, because that would put them out of the conversation if they did that and they wanted to engage in that conversation um it seems like there's some sort of power dynamic where they have the power to rope off certain things the, the behavior of blocking people is basically saying you can't question this this is therefore basically a god or an idol or a fetish this is basically very straight that this is a sacred thing um so it's just interesting to see that the religious imagination will pop up uh to anybody and anybody anywhere yeah i i agree like I, I would much rather debate christians and religious people than um the woke people i mean it's mainly i think because 
Christians, they agree that truth exists. You know, they're, they're truth seekers. They think that there is an objective reality that we're trying to understand. We're maybe coming from it at different angles and have different assumptions that are informing the way we're, we're approaching things. And, um, but ultimately, you know, they're receptive to evidence to a degree. You know, some people will just fall back and say, well, it's just my faith and whatever. And like, okay, at least we're like making the same observations about the state of the world. We might interpret it differently, but you know, there, we can still see that males and females are there. This mountain exists, all that stuff like that. You know, it's not just like social construction. Cause you, you talk to the, the woke people and it's, it's that whole, everything's the social construct. Truth is socially constructed. It's not out there. It's sort of in, Sex our, is a in co- our heads. Colonial construct. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you can't really, you can't really talk to them in the same way that you can, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's that modernism versus postmodernism. I think even though there's like major debates between Christians and atheists, like there's still modern debates. They're still like using, they still understand evidence, reason, philosophy they're applying. And, you know, it's, there's, there's still, there's guardrails to their discussions to a large degree about, you know, what's, what counts as what counts as evidence and when to concede and when to not, you know, it's not just mm-hmm. flooding the field with thought terminating cliches. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> it just, yeah. it's, it's that, it's that Marxist to the angle where it's just like all this stuff is justified because the, the ends are going to be, you know, what we're trying to achieve here. So yeah. it's, yeah, I can't, I can't, I mean, I, I'll, I will talk with them, not because I think I'm going to convince them of anything, but I think there's a lot of people on the sidelines who yeah. could benefit from watching that engagement. Um, but no, it's it's incredibly frustrating to talk to hmm. truly the true believer woke people yeah. about, about anything. I asked uh, Andrew Doyle a version of this question earlier, and he uh he rebutted me. He he uh, he put me in my place. But I'm still curious because <laughs> it's a theistic question. Um, you appear to be either ag- agnostic or atheist. Where does the meaning or transcendent or the metaphysical aspect of life? How do you encounter that, and how do you uh, commune with that if that's important, or do you just not need that? You're you're fine with accepting some whiskey in the evening and material reality uh, throughout the rest of the day? Yeah, that's a good question. I, th- I think a lot of it, I, I, I don't need or see why there needs to be like this ultimate cause or this ultimate, um, ultimate meaning sort of like in a cosmic scale that to give my life meaning. I'm more like I'm I'm fine with the proximate meanings that I have that are just around me, like my family, my I, I gain so much meaning from from being the son to my my mom and my dad and those relationships and you know, when I achieve something, like those are the first people I call. They give, you know, meaning to my life in so many ways. Um, you know, I would eventually like to have my own children, start my own family, and I would gain meaning from them and just trying to instill them with certain values that I think are good and letting them grow into, you know, who they grow into be. I mean, to me, like, I, I, I just gain so much meaning from my life, from my 
proximate interactions with people around me. Um, I, I feel like I do. I, I just don't innately have that desire for like a, a greater, a greater meaning beyond that. Um, yeah, I, I know that that's maybe not common. I don't know. Um, I know Richard Dawkins used to say something like, you know, they would they would ask him, you know, what are you going to replace religion with when you when it's gone? You know, because he was trying to eliminate it, and he would say something like, like he would rebut by saying, you know, well, what do you replace the cancerous tumor with when you <laughs> when you remove it from somebody? You know, it's, it's a snarky comeback. You know, it's yeah, it's a really yeah. good thing. And I used to be just being like, that was sort of how I would respond to that. Um, but I do think there is a role for religion in these meaning-making ways for people to sort of organize their lives around. I, I do accept that it's an important thing for maybe at a societal level for at least enough people maybe to have sort of these meaning-making mechanisms in their lives. The question for me is like, do you have to have a belief system that entails believing falsehoods in order for that to be effective? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe at a societal level, you you need to have people buy into like certain aspects of things that aren't true, you know, just or unverifiable it is even yeah aspects of you know do you need to believe in genesis do you need to believe in the stories of of you know, do you need to believe jesus was a real person like or that he re resurrected like is that do you need to believe in those things or is there a way to is there a secular way to do it hmm. that's a really interesting question to me. if you can take away the things that aren't true and still have it be effective in in molding society in ways that are beneficial um i don't think i need it as a personal level but you know, there's the whole societal level thing mm -hmm. and i'm more accepting that maybe it's necessary i don't know i'm not quite there yet but that's that's a question i'd like to explore more with mm -hmm. you know, people who maybe have thought about that to a larger degree yeah you mentioned Dawkins and uh, Sagan um, and Gould, who turned you on to what uh, eventually led you to doing this now. All three of those gentlemen are quite good at poetry or, or uh, the literary aspect of this. Do you, do, you, do you see yourself heading in that direction? Do you want to add a little bit of uh, personality and flavor? Do you see that that's an important part of... of uh, uh, of 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 the worker is it pretty uh you want to keep it more on the academic side uh when it comes to writing yeah that's that's interesting it's true they are like they do have a really strong poetic streak through them dawkins is a really big fan of poetry i suspect gould probably is too and and sagan i know he quotes a lot of poetry in his books like cosmos and stuff like that I have to say, I've never liked poetry, except for like the ones that are like kind of clever yeah. and they rhyme yeah. um, or they'll make me laugh or something like that. But so much poetry I read, I don't know how I'm supposed to read it. It's like, why did you hit enter there? Does it, is, is that just the way it's constructed? I don't know the tempo I'm supposed to read things. There Very rarely will a poem like strike me as, as being really... Um, hitting at like a really fundamental chord that that resonates with me 
maybe I just haven't read the right poets or something, but I've I've read stuff that people have sent me, and it's I just I just can't do it. I do like to sort of write more. You know, I mean, people say that my first article, like the New Evolution in Ayers, was sort of had some poetic aspects to it in the way it was structured. I, I would like to be more to add sort of more, I guess, colorful ways of explaining things in the way I write. Um, I do think I, I write a little dry, which people might be good, might be bad. I try to be really precise because I think that's just what this debate kind of needs right now yeah. is precision. Mm. But I would like to expand and do some more like natural history essays where I'm kind of being more poetic in my analogies and, and things like that. That's something I'd, I'd really like to do. Um, cause some of my best, I mean, my favorite authors are like that. Like, have you ever read Lauren Isley before by any chance he wrote like, so. uh, um, the night country he wrote the immense journey. He's just, it makes me angry how good of a writer he is when I read his stuff. And he's, <laughs> he writes, he's an anthropologist. He writes about evolution and it's just breathtaking. I, I just can't imagine writing like that guy, but he's, He's he's amazing, and I would I would love to sort of incorporate some of these those tools that he's using to unlock parts mm -hmm. of your brain that you don't get from like a scientific paper or from yeah. just like a really analytical, precise paper. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to explore that. That's something I'd I'd like. I, I can see myself doing. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I started uh, very slowly writing my thoughts on gender because I've been thinking and investigating it so much, and I took very extreme poetic, aphoristic tact, and um, because uh, one of my contentions is that gender is an aspect of culture that is incredibly potent and incredibly beautiful and the crucible by which children are born eventually uh, gender is what attracts a man to a woman and a woman to a man and there's a magic in that and yeah it goes over the edge uh, in certain cases when it's enforced on people enforced on people but there's a such an emergent field of fun there that um, I don't think we can uh, respectfully treat the topic of gender without giving a wink and a nod to flirtation and wit and what makes what turns people on right um that's what gets you in trouble on twitter yeah it does but <laughs> that's just that's where that's where i venture as i venture but um i agree i it's you need to have fun with sort of the whole gendered presentation that's that's part of what's so wrong is everything's gotten so serious i think about this topic um, even when you know, it's it never, extreme it spectacle, like, you know. even when it's extreme spectacle, it's very serious. Like the drag queen story hour, it's just, there's yeah. something kind of overwrought about artificial. Yeah. 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 It's, it's the artificiality that really just turns me off about that stuff. It's like, there's an, there's an agenda behind it. It's not like it just a emerging from someone's, you know, inner self as a true expression of what they are. It's, it's highly manicured and thought and, and beforehand and you're trying to shock people or something. I don't know. It's, it's not like a natural expression of, of human diversity, I guess, in a way it's, mm. it's, it's, it's like a production. Speaking of diversity, what's uh two or three of your famous or uh, favorite whiskeys at this point? Did you start uh, distilling your own yet? Are you on that? Have you ventured there yet? Or is I that cannot comment on that. Oh, given... okay. 
certain federal. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, maybe. Okay, yeah, this is crossing state lines right now, so we don't get into your moonshine business, um, but yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've whiskey's my number one go-to. Yeah. So it's such a broad category. I tend to favor the scotches over the bourbons, although I've been really exploring a lot of these Tennessee whiskeys since I've been living in Tennessee. Is and there I something really, particular about the Tennessee whiskey? that, that it's, uh... There's a really big debate in the whiskey community about if Tennessee whiskey's actually bourbon or if it's not. So to, to be Tennessee whiskey, it's basically everything that a bourbon is, but they have to do this this certain charcoal filtering process that uh, it's got a certain name to it. I, I actually can't remember the name of it. Um, but other places that aren't, they're outside of Tennessee, they do the same thing, but they can't call themselves Tennessee whiskey because they're not in Tennessee. <laughs> and there's nothing about Tennessee whiskey that makes it not bourbon. Even though Jack Daniels will tell you like, this isn't bourbon, like it's bourbon. It's just Tennessee whiskey is a subset of bourbon. It's not a big deal. It's just the way it is. Um, but I've been getting into a really good Tennessee rye whiskey that's a barrel-proof, single-barrel select that's been excellent. So I've been that's been one of my favorites lately. But in general, my favorites are a lot of these older scotches, um, a lot of the stuff that's like in sherry casks or the Speyside scotches. Does Those are really the scotch actually have to be uh produced in scotland to be scotch or yeah okay yeah. yeah um there's like places that'll do like scotch style whiskeys in the states by using like barley instead of corn and stuff like that but um yeah to be scotch you have to be in scotland taiwan is making amazing whiskey one of my favorite is uh this barrel proof uh taiwanese whiskey called Kavalon that was aged in ex-bourbon barrels it's amazing Something about the Taiwanese climate just like ages things rapidly where that tastes like a 20 year old bottle, but it's actually only four years. <laughs> it's they, it's amazing. They're, they actually beat out like this, the Scots in like a world whiskey tasting um, championships uh -oh. several years in a row. So yeah, they're killing it. Um, it's all those semiconductors yeah, just, they got yeah, out yeah. there. Just yeah. No, I love everything about whiskey. I think in the future I would, I would really love to have like my own, small craft distillery or something because it's just such a fun thing to thing to do and research well yeah. any two two recommendations we're, we're to venture do you do you, do you want to plug a couple no trying something? to think of stuff that you know people would really enjoy um so yeah so the japanese whiskey um by nika it's called the japanese it's called a their their coffee malt C-O-F-F-E-Y. It's not actually related to, like, coffee beans or anything. It's the type of still they use called a coffee still. It's excellent. It's it's very sweet and almost like a dessert whiskey. Um, I would recommend that. And then I would probably recommend, you know, for, like, a, a really good bourbon that's not expensive would be, like, the Old Granddad Bottled and Bond. Hmm. That is cheap. And it is is just everything you want in a, a bourbon. I yeah. really like Bullet. Bullet is or Bullier. Bullet, yeah, Bullet is excellent. Yeah, yeah I like the Bullet Ten Year. They have a really great one. Their rye is pretty good. 
yeah. good for mixing and stuff. Yeah. I, I enjoy their oh. rye a lot. And plus, you can get it in like 75,000 milligrams. Yeah, yeah that's solid. Awesome. Bullet rye was what got me into rye whiskeys. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Good stuff. Cool. Uh, imagine that. A thing like that. Well, Colin, it's been a long day for me. I'm sure it's a long day for you. You're going to be on Tucker eventually. You know, I was I was supposed to be on. I was sitting in the chair. I was all mic'd up. I had the thing in my ear and all the makeup, and I was ready to go. And then a little voice came on saying that they had to cancel because Tucker ranted too long in a previous segment. Um, and they were going to have me on the next day. And then Biden forgave $10,000 of student loan for everyone. And so that became the biggest news thing in the world. So they imagine my cartoon wasn't mm-hmm. pressing news at that point. So they said they were going to have me on next week. But I don't know. Who knows? Um, they didn't fly you out to New York, though, right? You have to fly to. No, there's a little studio in 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 Nashville that they take me in. So I don't know if I'm actually going to be on Tucker anymore, but um, they at least said that they'll contact me next week. But who knows if they will? Well, I hope so. Keep on memeing. It'll you'll hit gold again. (laughs) Keep making some cartoons. Well, I hope you get back to Twitter soon, but if not, I will link your Substack and the Substack-related Twitter account. And is there anything else? Are you you doing a podcast yet, or do you have a YouTube channel going on yet? Not yet. You know, I'm still trying to get my book out, because I think that'll be the—that needs to be a priority, because things are are getting crazy out there. (laughs) When is that expected, or due? You know, there's not—I don't have an expected date yet. It's still in in the process, but— it's where I'm going to be putting the vast majority of my time uh, moving forward. So hopefully soon. Righty tidy, righty tidy. Well, I can't wait to read it. Can't wait to yeah. get you back on again uh, to talk about it. Yeah. Maybe Always a pleasure chatting with you, man. Another two. Same, Colin. Same. I'll end it. <laughs>